Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. Last week we began looking at feeling as an initial evaluation, positive or negative, that is a precursor to craving, not directly but through a conditioned stimulus response dynamic. This week, we'll look primarily at spiritual feelings. Among the most elusive feelings is spiritual pleasure, that which is not of the flesh. It has a way of showing up unexpectedly. Of the flesh are those feelings that follow habit patterns that lead to craving. Common examples of spiritual pleasures are the rapture and pleasure experienced in jhana or nibbana, which is described as a delight apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, which surpasses even divine bliss. The discovery of spiritual pleasure was a key aspect of the discovery of the middle way. The Buddha-to-be practiced extreme austerities for many years, thinking, whatever recluses or Brahmins in the past have experienced painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion, this is the utmost. There is none beyond this. But by this racking practice of austerities, I have not attained any superhuman states, any distinction in knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones. Could there be another path to awakening? But then he recalled an experience he had had as a child, sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, Secluded from unwholesome states, I entered upon and abided in the first jhana, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. Could that be the path to awakening? Then, following on that memory, came the realization, that is indeed the path to awakening. Likewise, the fourth jhana is characterized as a state of complete equanimity, which is to say is neither pleasant nor unpleasant or neutral. It's also described as more sublime than the previous pleasure of the third jhana. This raises the question, how can it be sublime if the feeling is neutral? To this, the Buddha replies, the blessed one describes pleasure not only with reference to pleasant feeling, rather, friends, the Tathagata describes it as pleasure of any kind, whatever, and in whatever way it is found. Nibbana is likewise a state in which feelings, along with other factors of the chain, have ceased. And yet, the venerable Sariputta said this, Happiness, friends, is this Nibbana. Happiness, friends, is this nibbana. 
When this was said, the Venerable Udayi said to the Venerable Sariputta, But friend, what happiness could there be when there is nothing felt here? Just this friend is happiness here, that nothing is felt here. So we see that feeling can be a very slippery thing. Feeling and proliferation. In a previous talk, we saw how cognizance tends to grow where craving is present in order to implement goal-directed assessment and planning. What does cognizance do when it descends to a site where craving is absent? This question is particularly relevant to meditation practice, which is achieved in the context of having put away covetousness and grief concerning the world. It seems that either pleasure or pain provides a high enough level of interest to sustain cognizance, but that, in this context, it is less goal-oriented and more erratic and spontaneous than in the case of craving. In fact, it tends to spin out of control. With With contact contact as condition, there is feeling. What one feels, that one perceives. What one perceives, that one thinks about. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. With what one has mentally proliferated as the source, perceptions and notions born of mental proliferation beset a man with respect to past, future, and present appearance cognizable through the eye. This passage is repeated as for appearance and eye, so for sound and ear, odor and nose, taste and tongue, sensation and body, and phenomenon and mind. Notice that, like the chain that diverges at craving to give us seeking two talks ago, this passage describes a chain that diverges at feeling to give us proliferation. In summary, contact gives rise to feeling, feeling gives rise to perception, perception gives rise to thought, thought gives rise to proliferation, and proliferation gives rise to perceptions and notions. Proliferation is the heart of this process where the mind runs wild. Proliferation is papancha, in Pali, sometimes translated as obsession. This process should seem abundantly familiar in the experience of most listeners. For instance, we hear a catchy tune and before long we are caught in a wave of mindless disco fantasy. More generally, as we walk around contacting the things of the world, this or that announces itself as attractive or repulsive And each time it initiates a new wave of conceptual proliferation, thought, and concern, only to be cut through by a more newly triggered wave of conceptual proliferation, thought, and concern. Cognitively, this process makes sense. It's a fishing expedition, looking for something important enough to then crave and seek. We commonly go through our whole day like that, assaulted over and over by this or that circumstance, producing a cloud of new and yet newer mindless waves of mental activity unable to control 
nor make sense of any substantial part of it. What's more, we seek out proliferation. We turn on the TV or go shopping just to turn up the level of proliferation. Most people think that also this is fun. This course of experience applies to painful feelings as well as pleasurable, as when we see an ugly twiddlebug run behind the sofa and are soon playing out a scene from a horror movie in our head. Proliferation puts us into a kind of mental fog, is largely undirected, but does produce perceptual content and might just hit on something crave-worthy. It has been said that abandoning proliferation is more difficult than abandoning sense pleasures. The Buddha warns us about the dangers of proliferation. On one occasion, the Buddha learns that his distinguished disciple, Anuruddha, teaches that the Dhamma is for people of seven kinds of thought. This This Dhamma Dhamma is is for for one with with few few desires, who is content, who resorts to solitude, who is energetic, who has mindfulness established, who is concentrated, and who is wise. The Buddha suggests that Anuruddha add an eighth bullet point. Good, good, Anuruddha. It's good that you have reflected on these thoughts of a great person. Therefore, Anuruddha, also reflect on this eighth thought of a great person. This Dhamma is for one who delights in non-proliferation, who takes delight in non-proliferation, not for one who delights in proliferation. Proliferation is a common effect of pleasurable or painful feelings. It takes just a little bit of interest to set us off. However, neutral feelings about objects of contact work differently. They typically give rise to boredom, dullness, or confusion, or lead us elsewhere to alternative distractions or to daydreaming just to keep the engine of proliferation running. Nonetheless, sometimes life requires of us that we give matters of neutral feeling our full attention. Imagine being a quality control inspector at the end of an assembly line that makes identical plastic Buddhas, and your job is to pick out the ones that in any way deviate from normal. Or imagine being a greeter at Walmart. Welcome to Walmart, smile. Come and see us again. Welcome to Walmart, smile. Come and see us again. Without deliberate attention, we ignore altogether what is most immediately before us, but is neutral. And this ignorance gives us a stilted view of the world. However, neutral feelings at the same time provide a unique contrasting opportunity for gaining clear insight and wisdom not generally available to us through the fog of papancha, proliferation. In fact, our meditation is based on this principle. Notice that we begin meditation with bland, neutral, meditative objects, like the breath rather than a more provocative plate of freshly baked cookies. In the absence of pleasant or painful feelings, 
we are unlikely to spin out of our meditation into proliferation. And with a modicum of mindfulness, we can keep the mind stabilized on these neutral objects without daydreaming or seeking distractions elsewhere. Then, with a stable mind, we see such objects for what they are with clear, unbiased understanding. We thereby distribute perceptions more evenly within the perceptual field and become cognizant of details not usually perceived. This is the window, normally tightly shuttered, through which we direct our attention in mindful observation, which is satipatthana, in order to gain knowledge and vision. As a result, neither painful nor pleasant feeling is pleasant when there is knowledge, and painful when there is no knowledge. Effectively, neutral feeling flips from indifference to equanimity, and at the same time from ignorance to knowledge through properly directed attention. Now, mindful, undistracted observation is a kind of stepping back from mundane engagement in experience, a skill taught as the satipatthana that leads to a similar degree of serenity and samadhi. Observation of feelings is one of the four fundamental practices of satipatthana, thereby we move toward this equanimity along with its clarity while examining even the pleasant and unpleasant to gain wisdom. When, when one, one is, is touched by, by neither painful nor pleasant feeling, if one does not understand as it actually is the origination, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in regard to that feeling, then a habit pattern for ignorance lies within one. So let's talk about the cessation of feeling. Not all feelings are problematic. We do not seek the cessation of spiritual pleasure. Accordingly, the Buddha tells us, When someone feels another kind of pleasant feeling, unwholesome states diminish in him, and wholesome states increase, that I therefore say enter upon and abide in such a kind of pleasant feeling. We most commonly associate spiritual pleasures with the jhanas, as described earlier. In fact, jhana or samadhi arises in various conditioning contexts, out of which the sequence delight gives rise to tranquility and tranquility gives rise to samadhi is described as arising naturally without effort. These are immediate karmic fruits. These contexts include practicing virtue, remembrance of the triple gem, and of course mindful investigation, satipatthana, the latter particularly described within the seven factors of awakening. Although spiritual pleasures flow naturally from devout, wholesome practice and apparently also characterize nibbana, they can also give rise to craving and appropriation. For instance, we often crave today regaining the bliss that we attained in yesterday's meditation. Practitioner, beware. 
An effective way to limit the effects of feeling is through reflection on feeling as a condition of sensual craving alongside awareness of the pain inherent in that craving. Much material for such reflection has been presented in this and last week's talk. Here, as elsewhere, when we clearly discover that something leads to pain, we tend to let go of it. We should give particular attention to reflecting on how our habit patterns play out to connect feeling and craving, much as an addict gives attention to the behaviors that lead to another fix. In fact, clinical mindfulness techniques have been developed successfully for mitigating addictions that work by observing such habit patterns. Friend Wisaka, the habit pattern for lust should be abandoned in regard to pleasant feeling. The habit pattern for aversion should be abandoned in regard to painful feeling. The habit pattern for ignorance should be abandoned in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feeling. The cessation of these habit patterns can lead to the cessation of craving and suffering. When bhikkhus a bhikkhu has abandoned the habit pattern for lust in regard to pleasant feeling, the habit pattern for aversion in regard to painful feeling, and the habit pattern for ignorance in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feeling, then he is called a bhikkhu without habit patterns, one who sees rightly. He has cut off craving, severed the fetters, and by completely breaking through conceit, he has made an end to suffering. A standard framework applied to reflection on feeling is as follows. With the arising of contact, there is the arising of feeling. With the cessation of contact, there is the cessation of feeling. This noble eightfold path is the way leading to the cessation of feeling. The pleasure and joy that arise in dependence on feeling, this is the gratification in feeling. That feeling is impermanent, suffering, and subject to change, this is the danger in feeling. The removal and abandonment of desire and lust for feeling, this is the escape from feeling. Reflection can similarly be directed beneficially toward the dissatisfaction of proliferation that has its source in feeling. Bhikkhu, as to the source through which perceptions and notions born of mental proliferation beset a man, if nothing is found there to delight in, welcome, and hold to, this is the end of the habit pattern of lust of the habit pattern of aversion, of the habit pattern of views, of the habit pattern of doubt, of the habit pattern of conceit, of the habit pattern of desire for becoming, of the habit pattern for ignorance. Another topic of reflection is a comparison of mundane, of the flesh pleasure with the sublime, not of the flesh pleasure that comes from devout, wholesome practice. Recognizing the gratification, danger, and escape with regard to mundane feeling and the pure, taintless nature of sublime feeling tends to inspire our practice and orient our way of life away from the pursuit of sensual pleasures. If, by giving up lesser happiness, one could experience greater happiness, 
a wise person would renounce the lesser to behold the greater.